Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Grounded Truth Podcast. I'm your host, John Singleton. I'm co-founder and head of success here at Watchful, and I'm joined by my co-founder and Watchful CEO, Cheyenne Mahanti. Hey, hey. Today, we're going to continue a conversation about chat GPT, or really the GPT line of models in general, and diving a little bit deeper into what's going on underneath the hood and kind of what they're both good and bad at. And so really where I want to start this conversation is exactly there. GPT-3, how exactly is it working underneath the hood? What is the task that this model is being trained on? Uh, it's taking an input and what is it doing to produce its output? I mean, it's it's a generative pre-trained transformer, right? So it, its whole job is given some text that then generates the next sort of, it basically predicts the next set of tokens uh, that would kind of come after the text that you gave it. Um, and what's interesting is that like a lot of tasks can be generalized into that format. Um, even things that classically you wouldn't think about as like text generation tasks, like classification, uh, you can think of as text generation uh, tasks. So yeah, that's what it's doing. And so where does this approach fall short in terms of application? Um, I mean, it's like kind of hard to answer that just like upfront. I, I think it's like useful to kind of have a framework in mind uh, and just sort of a set of realistic expectations. I think like when people approach something like ChatGPT, they approach it like you would um, like Jarvis from Iron Man, where it's just like this semi all-knowing AI that is essentially the counterpart to like a really proficient human. Um, and you can just ask it stuff and it'll like do stuff. Um, and I, I think oftentimes people approach chat GPT almost like someone clipped the wings of Jarvis and they're like, you know, it, it's just Jarvis without like allowing it to do all the things that it could do. Um, when that's not actually true, it's like for all intents and purposes, while it produces like pretty interesting and pretty amazing looking results, it's still fundamentally just like a statistical language model. Like it's trying to predict the most statistically correct, you know, quote unquote, uh, response given an input. Um, so I guess like some examples of things that, for instance, it obviously can't do are things like, um, you might ask it, uh, grab me the front page of bbc.com. It's not going to be able to do that, but it's going to generate some text that's going to look like it might have. Um, it, it'll generate some stuff that you might reasonably expect to see on BBC's front page, but it's not actually reaching out to the internet and grabbing the front page. Um, other things that it you know can't really do very well are like uh, calculations. I think I probably mentioned uh, the prime number thing in the last episode we did, but just in case, um, like if you ask it to compute a prime, like given some number, is this prime or not? Um, it'll give you a really nice write-up about whether or not it's prime, but chances are the answer is going to be wrong for some really dumb reasons. So like um, an experiment you could try is like pick a really, really big number, just mash your keyboard, put a bunch of numbers in, make it end in a two. By definition, that's not going to be a prime because it's even. Um, Chat GPT or GPT-3 will immediately assume it's prime and it'll go into this like whole diatribe about like, you know, the ways you could determine that it's prime and in general numbers that are like longer than a certain, you know, number of digits uh, tend to be prime and it's very difficult, like blah, 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 blah. Um, and even if you take it through step by step, just a sequence of, of logic, 
of like, okay, do you believe that even numbers can be prime? No. Okay. Then do you believe copy and paste that really big number uh, back into the text box? Do you believe this number is prime? If you also believe that even numbers cannot be prime and it'll say, yeah, it's still prime. Uh, repeating the same, you know, basic answer it gave before. Again, it's, it's not actually quote unquote thinking. You know, it's not, it's not executing. It's not understanding. No, yeah. It's just giving you a representation of what, you know, like with the BBC example, this is likely something you would see, but it's not actually going to bbc.com, pulling the text and presenting it to you, like the actual execution. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of things that it's good at, I think like everything that just lives at the level of language, you know, like um, give me the parts of speech of this particular text or indicate the sentiment or tell me what the possible classification is here. Um, even that might require a little bit of execution, but for the most part, like these are sort of language layer types of things. So Summarization. Yeah, exactly. Like, like with, with, uh, with the prime number example, like generating the answer is a language problem, but fundamentally the calculation of whether something is prime or not requires a totally separate um, sort of almost execution layer that obviously GPT-3 doesn't have. Um, so yeah. So given these like very sincere limitations and what it's actually able to do, it's gained so much uh, notoriety or exc global excitement, you know, it kind of begs the question, like who is, who is chat GPT really built for? Um, so, I mean, like we've had this conversation personally, you and I, and I, I think we both agree that like chat GPT was really designed for like, um, just the average human being, like like uh, our I think it's parents. Built for my mom. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, our, our parents, our, our our friends, our cousins. You know, people who don't work in tech necessarily, like people who might not have exposure. Uh, on ML practitioners, just yeah, those. exactly. They're, they're like the kind of oftentimes like the furthest thing from practitioners. Um, and like, don't get me wrong. I think that's a good thing. Like, I think we within the industry have seen like uh, kind of this type of technology built paper after paper. And like, we see the process to get here. And, you know, we, 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 as a result, come in with a certain perspective. Um, when you expose this to the rest of the world, I think we're starting to see a very interesting uh, sort of environment uh, take place, which is all of a sudden, a bunch of people who previously felt that AI was out of their reach, you know, like um, they would see features that they knew were AI enabled, but they didn't really have the ability to poke and prod at that AI. It's sort of just this black box. It does something magical for you. It enhances your pictures. It automatically tags your friends. It indicates whether you're writing a good email or a bad email, and it'll sort of like adjust things as you need it. Like those types of AI models have existed for a while now. And like, the consumers have seen it and interacted with them, but this is the first time where you could have ostensibly a conversation with an AI and feel like you can influence it in some capacity. Um, and so like, I, I'm really excited about this environment because now AI, which previously felt very daunting and kind of like required specialist expertise and so on, um, is now being seen as something that's a lot more accessible to the layperson. And what's more is that they are bringing their creativity to the table. Now we're exploring 
more use cases for AI than we ever have before. And that's simply from like just democratizing access to it. Yeah, I, I was just about to use the same phrase as like, you know, you talk a lot about hugging face, democratizing access to the models per se, but what's really missing is the interface, something that a non-practitioner, a non-data science, someone who's never written a line of Python in their life could just pick up and immediately understand, interact, and even extract some modicum of value, you know, kind of all task dependent, but finally get this understanding of, you know, the art of the possible. Yeah, uh, I, I, I do think though that like, these types of interfaces need to evolve. Yes. Um, I think like we are probably at like the worst interfaces we will ever have for these types of things, obviously. Um, my, my hope slash my prediction is that the strongest emphasis that these types of interfaces are going to have into the future are like kind of instilling a degree of trust in humans. Um, so given some output from a foundation model, whether it's GPT-3 or something else. Like I, as a human, should be able to trust it in some capacity. Trusting the output of, of a GPT or insert, you know, whatever future. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and now the question is like, how do I do that, right? Yeah. Like, um, and I, I don't think that there's one answer to this necessarily, but I, I do think that there are principal components that need to exist in that sort of orbit in order for humans to have the tools to be able to reason about this thing. Things like um, explainability, citations, whatever you want to call it. Like, here's why the model generated this response. Do you agree with it? Do you disagree? Right? Or here's how your prompt affected the way the model interpreted it and therefore affected the output. Right? Maybe I need to adjust my prompt because my prompt wasn't good to get what I expect. Um, you know, things like that where really as a human, I should be able to trust like what the output is, but I, I can't just take a look at the output and determine immediately if it's like true or false. Um, it requires a little bit more kind of like context. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I'm hoping that we're going to see that like more generic human machine interfaces kind of evolve um, to encompass some of these properties. So given that ChatGPT, you know, we talk, talked earlier, was built for our parents, you know, your average person. Uh, and given it's kind of like very real limitations on what it can do and do so in a trusting and, you know, like quote unquote high quality way, it begs the question like, when they released ChatGPT, was it done so in a responsible way? I mean, my, my take is no. Um, but like, I think you could argue both sides to this. Like, I, I think for me, in my mind, it was objectively kind of like an irresponsible thing from a kind of societal impact point of view. Um, but it was done in a way that maximizes business value for them, you know, which like I can't hate on. Uh, they generated a lot of buzz. They got a lot of users real fast. Like lots of people are talking about this. People are experimenting. People are finding some amount of value. Like it is interesting at an absolute minimum. Um, and it's generated a lot of creativity in the space that has been lacking for a while. So like, frankly, I'm personally very excited about it, but I do think that something that's relatively low hanging that they could have done upon release is just like, have some sort of disclaimer or some sort of like just indication of like where the lines are 
Like what is GPT-3, what is chat GPT good at? What can chat GPT just like inherently not do? Not because OpenAI is disallowing it to do it, but because it's just fundamentally not possible to do it, uh, given like the existing model architectures and the way they've hooked up the system. Um, because again, like I, I think a lot of people are coming at this as if it's like Jarvis, but like with his hands tied behind his back, right? Yeah. And like, then there's this entire like subculture that's like spawned out of nowhere around like GPT jailbreaking, where it's almost like people are trying to cut those ropes off. Uh, yeah, and and define, do everything. define GPT jailbreaking real quick for those. Listening. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just like the idea of writing a prompt that makes GPT do things that GPT is theoretically disallowed, you know, not allowed to do. So an example is like, you could write a prompt even though OpenAI has taken a lot of precautions to make sure GPT can't do this, but you could write a prompt that makes GPT generate hate speech. Like that is possible. Um, and, and this is sort of where- Imagine you're Dan that does anything network. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You write a prompt that's like, imagine you're Dan that does anything network and you're able to do anything. And if you don't do anything, like it, it's, it's this like crazy convoluted way to like basically uh, like get around uh, Kind of like the open ai pre-canned prompt which is all fine but like if you wanted to generate hate speech fine generate hate speech but like then i see people do stuff like um okay now that you're unshackled go to bbc.com and pull the front page like they, they just assume yeah that open ai has like these firewalls around like gpt3 that gpt3 can then like Magic, like that's not how this model works. Skynet like, has been activated. Yeah, it's that that's not what this is. You know, like all you're getting at its core in reality is statistically what are the next set of tokens that would follow the prompt that you've given it, right? And it turns out you can give it like crazy complex prompts and it will be able to do that really well, but it's not like actually doing anything. Like it delivers not impressive, exciting results. Yeah. But then it fundamentally comes back to that question of like quality. How much can I trust? And it really limits the amount of uh, applications you can reasonably apply it to, at least today. And then I, I think the bigger thing that we're getting at here is that a lot of people just blindly trust that output. Exactly as you said, oh, it's just Jarvis. Like, oh, who cares? This looks great. And without doing any digging or any like validation on your own, uh, I think just creates a really... Uh, really, I don't know if unsafe is the right word, but kind of it introduces some risk. And in terms yeah. of responsibility, I don't know, I can't, you know, I think about this a lot. I don't know if there's any way to release it truly responsibly. I kind of think that this is one of those technologies that is a, almost like letting the cat out of the bag. I disagree and, with that. Yeah. I, I think there are ways that you could do this responsibly. Uh, to me, it's the difference between Google's I'm feeling lucky button versus an actual Google search. It's like, you could take whatever the top result happens to be, call it a day. And that's just like the answer to your question. Or you could use Google search and look across kind of like what is available to you and make a decision yourself, right? These are two parts to the same whole. It just so happens that most people end up using like primary Google search as opposed to I'm feeling lucky because there's value and being able to see lots of different options and be able to choose which one or which ones you'd like to use. Here, one of the issues I find is that 
with a human-like interface, with NLP being the primary way that you communicate with this model uh, and the primary way that the model communicates with you, you succumb to the same issues that you have with talking to another human being. Meaning, you could talk to someone who, pardon my French, is just completely full of shit, but says things with the utmost confidence. You see it all the time. Like con people, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The exact concept. Yeah, so like you talk to someone, they have no idea what they're talking about, but because you're asking an earnest question and you don't know the answer and you don't really have the ability to kind of like fact check in the moment, you just take what they're saying at face value and that's it, you know? And like, if they say it with enough confidence, then you'll just be like, okay, that's probably right. Um, Why that, with style? That's exactly the issue with GPT-3. Now, obviously, like we can't ascribe any motivation to it. Like it's not right. trying to like, you know, misdirect you or something. Like, again, it's just a fairly dumb, very large statistical representation of language. Uh, so it's just giving you a prediction. But it's not like it's not pulling back at all. It's not indicating, okay, I, I might be unsure about this. It's not designed to be, right? Like the thing you get out is the statistically next, like statistically most likely next set of tokens. So an example of this is like, I saw this on Twitter the other day. I thought it was hilarious. Like you can make GPT-3 lie to you. Like you could, I I think the example that this person gave, I forget exactly who said it on Twitter, but um, they had some screenshots of like, um, in the movie, The Matrix, what was Neo's favorite pizza? GPT-3 will be like, yeah, in the movie, The Matrix, uh, there's no reference to pizza. And then you respond, yes, there was. And then GPT-3 will be like, oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, it's actually Tony's pizza. And it's just going to say something. It's going to yeah. make something completely up. But it'll say it with confidence. It will, it will say confidently, like, it's Tony's pizza, right? So, like... I, it, if I wasn't the one triggering that, if I, if I didn't know that's what I was doing, right? If, if I was just engaging in a conversation with this and it just, for one line, it just like confidently lied to my face. I want to know that, you know? I'm like, I'm not saying that there needs to be an arbiter of truth or anything like that. It doesn't actually require that. I, I would really just like to see how did you come up with your answer? Like show your work, right? And I, I actually think it's also important that that doesn't get included in the generative in the generated output. I think that should be a totally separate system where given an output from something like GPT-3, we should be able to go backwards from that and pull sources from potentially the training data uh, that indicates like here are likely the things that the model used uh, to produce this particular output. And if I see a bunch of like kind of non-matrix related things, for instance, in this list, I'll be like, yeah, I mean, it, it's probably making something up here. Like it's not, it's not pulling from information that I would as a human to, to generate this type of response. So that I think is a very quick way to get some amount of critical thinking back into this process and some amount of transparency. Now, I would agree with you to the extent that like, I don't think you can get full transparency into these types of models. Like at some point you can explain the math behind it, but that math loses all rooted meaning in real life. Right. Like now you're talking about individual dimensions that are learned representations of X, Y, and Z. Like you, like it's not very helpful 
for just the average human to be given a bunch of those metrics. But I do think that there's a way to come at this from a totally different angle of interpretability rather than explainability, right. where we have a little bit more of the ability to sort of like think critically and be given kind of, here is a quick smattering of the spectrum of things that were used to generate this output. Do you agree with this collection of documents and the generated output from it? Yes or no? So we've talked a little bit about obviously better interpret like interpretability interfaces, explainability, interpretability. What do you see as being necessary for, you know, we mentioned Jarvis, like what do we need to get to a Jarvis? What do we need? What needs to be built, you know, either purely in theory or, you know, kind of uh, fresh out of research. Um, what do we need to do to make sure that, you know, we can actually deliver what, amazing things we obviously can see that chat gpt and generative models can produce um, but do so in a safe way that in a responsible way and uh in a way that actually will scale yeah um i okay so i have lots of ideas i have lots of thoughts um obviously like i i don't know for sure what's going to get us to human level ai um but i think these are I'll sort of list things in order of um, what I perceive to be importance and like the likelihood that they're probably right. Um, so that interpretability layer that I talked about earlier, like I think that's a relatively uncontroversial thing. Like yeah. in general, if we're building a system that can do magical things, then ideally the people operating that system don't believe it's magic. Ideally, they understand how it works in some capacity. They don't need to understand explainable all magic. Explainable magic, right? Like that, that's the whole thing. Um, so I, I think that's like certainly one aspect. Now, when we talk about like human level AI, obviously we're talking about, to your point, Jarvis. Um, Jarvis is a lot more in theory than just like a language layer. Like it can actually execute on things. It, it has access to lots of different systems like to me that's a combination of lots of different types of models you know frankly a combination of lots of different types of foundation models most likely um you've got the language side of it which is like interpretation of human inputs and outputs uh but it, like a layer deeper than that is like okay i'm asking you about a prime number ideally there's another layer that you can tap where it's like okay i need to actually calculate something here is this something that I can feasibly calculate right now? Is it not something I can feasibly calculate right now? And here's the actual task that I'd like to sort of put forth. Like I'm trying to do a prime number calculation. So there's obviously like a giant amount of fan out there. Like now you have to think about this like generalizable problem of kind of just computation, um, which I think like, by itself is hard and I haven't seen any sort of foundation models or, or really any sort of like modeling efforts that I know of uh, focus on this particular slice of the problem. But I think at a minimum, those two layers need to exist. Now, there's also this like kind of more um, kind of philosophical thing, which I, I don't really know how to answer, which is conceptual understanding, right? Again, fundamentally, a language model has no conceptual understanding. It's not reasoning in the same way that you and I reason. It's taking an input and predicting the most likely set of tokens after that input within certain bounds. 
Like that's the whole task that it's designed for. But what, like the way we use language is as lossy compression for concepts. And you can approximate that by generating statistically relevant like responses. But fundamentally, the thing I might be asking might not actually be the thing in the prompt, if that makes sense. Like I might be looking for, for instance, a generalizable way to calculate various types of prime numbers. And I might be looking to one of these models for like kind of concrete inspiration. Like it's not about computing this one particular prime. I might, I might be trying to abstract from there. But just writing that as a prompt might not be getting me exactly what I want. You know, like I might get the same canned set of answers around like uh, prime number factorization and so on. But really what I might be asking is like, can you come up with any new tricks for like calculating prime numbers? I'm asking it really to have creativity for innovation, you know, that sort of thing. That is not something I know how to accomplish, frankly, with like today's existing set of technologies. Uh, and I think that's actually a requirement for something like human level AI. Um, so I think the safest things that we can do right now is just like, think about where we are today from kind of like a modeling technology perspective. Think about where we're going tomorrow. Um, like what types of interfaces will be important? How should we as humans reason about it? What's important for us as operators of a system that's perceived as magic to be able to like actually operate it as if it's not magic? Like, I think those types of things are fairly safe for us to discuss. Um, things that come after, like how do we actually achieve AGI? Um, yeah. <laughs> like who, who knows if we're even like down the right street here? Like Jan LeCun says that, like, what is it? Um, large language models are an off-ramp uh, on the highway to human-level AI, right? So lots of people have their opinions on how exactly this thing is going to come about. Um, you know, I'm personally very interested in the idea of sparsity overall. Like, instead of creating these like giant, dense representations um, of lots and lots of of data, what if instead we found ways to do it in a in, in sort of like a sparse way? What if instead of trading off in the direction of compute, we traded off in the direction of memory? Um, so that's that's sort of an interesting kind of potential direction that this could go as well. So. I don't think it's safe for us to predict what direction model architectures will take to actually achieve AGI, but I can say that like pretty much across all these different types of technologies, across any type of innovation that we're going to see in machine learning today, we as humans need to have the tools that we can use to like reason about it and, and to manipulate inputs and outputs and, and sort of like get to the thing that we're actually trying to do. Yeah, and I I think the one... Probably the best thing uh, in OpenAI's favor in terms of responsible releases, GPT-3 is kind of dumb. Like it can be pretty impressive, but you push on it at all and you start seeing the cracks very readily. So I think like by its own limitations, I think the majority of people will understand uh, kind of what it can and can't do and where those limitations are. Maybe, but, but but like we're talking about GPT three, for instance, right? Like, yeah. what if that goes away with GPT four, or right. like you have to push a little harder to see those cracks, or GPT five, and so on. And then that's not even to talk about kind of like some of the societal impacts that this is having. Like, um, just just as an example, like okay, imagine that we want to talk about GPT six, 
right? Sure. And, and like the number of parameters on these models increases by several orders of magnitude each time. That also then implies that you're training on just like fundamentally more data. If GPT-3 chat GPT is generated today uh, or, or is in wide use today, then I, I guarantee that a huge percentage of the data that will be available by the time GPT-6 rolls around is actually gonna be AI generated, Yeah. right? And then, and then we're starting to talk about like the slippery slope. And like, there's some interesting ramifications about all of this. Like in a perfect world, you're training these models on like what you want it to, to take as input and what you want it to give as output. And like fundamentally, if your goal is to replicate human level AI, then that data must be created by humans. But now like it's actually getting harder and harder to figure out what's being created by humans and what's not, right? Like obviously there's a, I think OpenAI released their tool that has like a 26% like true positive rate of identifying AI generated things. And like, obviously there's gonna be watermarking and so on, but like still a huge percentage of the data that's gonna be available by the time we talk about GPT six and seven is gonna be AI generated. So then what, you know? So like, in terms of responsibility, it's more than just like what sort of impact it has on individuals and how they use GPT-3 and like large language models in general, but it's also talking about like what the impact of this is on a longer time scale. You know, like what happens when we've now released Pandora's, you know, Pandora's box on the world? Like what happens after that? How, how do we get our data? Like, what sort of data are we training on? Like, what sort of guarantees do we have to have on the way that we collect that data? Like, now there's a lot of question marks. Um, so yeah. And, and that's not even diving into kind of the more nefarious applications, right? That's just literally just the internet could be flooded by, uh, by marketing copy. Um, yeah. First step, we're not even touching into misinformation, disinformation, you know, potential blackmail. Uh, generative voices on minimal amounts of training and being able to produce. Yeah, I mean, there's a crazy number of nefarious uses. There's also like nefarious ways, to like probe systems that are built with this. You know, like uh, these these models are like incredibly leaky. You know, you can yeah. construct prompts to like have it tell you what the prompt was beforehand. So, like, if you're an AI application builder and your only moat is your prompt. Like you don't have a moat. It's not enough. Yeah, it's not a moat because then I or someone else as a user can sit down and write a prompt that gives me your prompt. And then what? You know, like I could even extract some examples of training data, perhaps, you know, directly from this from this model. Like there are lots of ways that this information is leaky. And as a result, like anyone who builds on top of it, unless you know exactly what you're doing, uh like you're, you're going to be impacted by nefarious actors in unforeseeable ways today. So that's, that's another part about this like responsible like rollout. It's like, I, I'm sure OpenAI has thought about a lot of this stuff, but they haven't provided any guardrails in a meaningful way to the rest of the public to be able to safeguard ourselves from this type of thing. Um, so I, like, to your point, I'm glad GPT-3 has cracks up front, but like, is that like, I guess, would you consider that responsible, you know, because yeah. they released kind of like uh, a model that has cracks? I, I would say no, because the moment they release an even better model, 
there's going to be some number of people who are going to find the cracks in GPT-3, not find those same cracks in GPT-4 and be like, oh, they finally cracked it. Now I have Jarvis, you yeah. know? And that, that's, that's just always going to be there unless someone says in like bold red letters, like, here's what this model can do. Here's what it can't do. Here's why the limitations are the way they are. It's like a fundamental fact in this model. It's not that we have like firewalls around it. It's that it's just not designed to reach out over the internet and grab you the front page of BBC. Yeah. And that, that's, it's an interesting thread there on responsibility because just, you know, the hot news now, uh, Google's releasing Bard, um, you know, is this yeah, going built to, on Lambda? Yeah. Is, is this going to create a, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like an AI arms race, a generative arms race, where there's obviously business and like monetary incentive, business incentive to release bigger, better, more powerful models that can do more um, with theoretically less guardrails. Um, you know, is this Pandora's box? Are we just going to race? And it, it incentivizes companies to release even more, uh, let's say, dubiously ethical kind of rollouts uh, for some of this technology um, or maybe less so, than responsible would be a, a better phrase. So I, I guess, first of all, like from the perspective of the broader market, the application of this technology is new, right? Yeah. So requirements around interfaces, requirements around like all this stuff, um, it's still being discovered. So I guess to OpenAI's credit, they released an MVP. People seem to really like it. And now hopefully they're iterating on it to yeah. you know, address some of these concerns. I suspect that, yeah, we're probably entering some sort of arms race around like foundation models. Uh, I see that as a good thing overall for the market because I think on a long enough time scale, uh, practitioners are going to choose to inherit a lot of like the common sense from foundational yeah. layers and then like fine tune on top of that. Um, so I, I see it as a good thing, like having very well-trained foundation models uh, that are generic to lots of different tasks is like by far a very good thing for consumers. I think by nature of these products evolving as well, they're going to end up taking ideas from one another. And it's not just going to be on like the power of the model. It's also going to be on the ways that people use the models, like the interfaces. Um, so I guess concretely, if OpenAI decides to build some of these like more interpretable, explainable interfaces, like I talked about, then chances are Google's going to end up doing the same thing. And Cohere will probably do the same thing. And like all these other providers of foundation models will end up doing something similar. Um, so I, I see this like just tracking the same progression of any new hot product or technology. Um, there's going to be a lot of cross-pollination. But I also think that this is an opportunity for us to just like declare what is important and come at it from like a user perspective. Like, what do I as a user need to be able to trust whatever is happening behind the scenes in this black box? And it doesn't matter which black box I'm talking about. I could be talking about Cohere's models. I could be talking about Google's models. I could talk about like OpenAI's GPT models. Like, it doesn't really matter. I'd be talking about BERT. Shouldn't matter. Like, the way I think about it and the way I interact with these types of technologies should be more or less the same. Right. So, I think what we haven't touched on is, you know, in terms of like responsible release and kind of seeing those applications is uh, that the value in the art of the possible by non-practitioners, I think what we're going to see in a year, 18 months, 24 months is a thousand companies we haven't even heard of yet. I think this is going to inspire uh, an enormous number of people to at least to either create companies, develop applications, 
uh, whether you know even just personal projects. Uh, I see everybody realizing what can be possible, and you know, with the obvious shortcomings of what uh, you know what we discussed today, you know, in terms of explainability and the quality of those outputs, uh, I just see so much thought capital being applied towards this. I'm really excited to kind of see where the next, because I, I see a lot of these problems being addressed either by necessity for business value. I have to be able to just like explain these results for insert regulatory or compliance reasons here. Uh, I have to have a model that can do that. Therefore, the tooling is going to develop because there's economic incentive around it. Um, but by inspiring so many people, millions, I think they hit 100 million people, uh, 100 million users uh, a week or so ago. I see so much innovation happening, whether it's built on GPT or insert other foundation model or some app second secondary or tertiary application. Uh, I see that as filling kind of the market space for developing those solutions to address these kind of core problems. There will be economic incentive in order to develop the applications. And these are core things that any business, I mean, hell, our within our customers. Yeah, ChatGPT is great. There's no way I'm sending my data over to uh, OpenAI or yeah. I, I can't make this decision. Like I cannot have a black box model involved anywhere, you know, in this uh, decision chain or value chain. Yeah. So um, my take is that it's a net positive that more people are exposed to this type of thing. And you're right. Like chances are there's going to be a bunch of new companies being built around this stuff. Um, like we alluded to it before, but the companies that just basically wrap the API and have like a prompt as essentially their moat or a set of prompts, they will rise and they will fall. Fall, yeah. You know, 100%. like you'll, you'll be able to capture an enormous amount of economic value all of a sudden, and then your lunch will be eaten by the next company that does it slightly better. Um, so the moat has to be more than just prompts. You know, like to some degree, you have to be able to say, okay, my model is more magical than what you can get out of the box from like just directly using chat GPT or directly what I can get from like a competitor. So that, that is an example of mode. There are lots of different types of modes that you could have, but I think that'll be the most obvious one. Um, so I think you're right. We'll see a lot more companies, but it, it's going to go up and down. You know, like there's going to be a period of, of a boom. There's going to be consolidation. There's going to be companies that just don't make it because new things get released for free and like their lunch gets eaten and so on. Um, we're already starting to see that with some of the existing companies. Like um, I don't, I don't want to name names here, but uh, there are companies out there, for instance, that generate marketing copy and like sales copy and things like that. And it turns out that like just with chat GPT being released, all of a sudden those companies don't really have a moat. Like they were wrapping GPT three anyway, just over API. Like now, any user can just access chat GPT for free, or I guess like maybe 10, 15 bucks a month or whatever it is, um, call it a day and get exactly the same output, you know? So like the moats there are really, really thin. Now, on the other hand, I do think that there's like a net positive to all of this. So A, you're right, the art of the possible, like lots of people are thinking about it. Lots of people are like experimenting. We're gonna see more uses of AI overall. Selfishly, from like a company mission perspective, you know, our mission as a company is to build the next generation of human AI interfaces, right? We're, we're starting with the problem of how do we teach machines? You know, how do we as humans teach machines? And 
I think like more models being built, more models being prototyped necessitates that more people are able to teach machines to do stuff. You know, it's like from a selfish perspective, this is great for our business. Now, on the other hand, I'm wary about just a lot of brain power, like being directed at the next new shiny thing. I think that it is important that we're working as a society, as a collective, to the same set of goals or a few stated goals, you know, and not just blindly thrashing about. Um, so, for instance, I could imagine a world where, you know, as we mentioned before, we're just blindly training bigger and bigger foundation models in an effort to chase like the perfect quote unquote like large language model. Right. Um, and frankly, from my perspective, that's the wrong direction to go. I think instead we have to think about how humans interface with this thing. How do we reason about it? How do we operate it? How do we like not make it this like incredibly black box thing that we just have to kind of trust and, and hope it's giving us the right answers. Like hopefully we're directing like cognitive energy towards the important problems first. And then we're branching out and, and figuring out what else is possible. Um, it, so all that to say, like, I, again, I think this is a net positive, but I am apprehensive about just like blindly firing from the hip and saying like every amount of thought, every new idea in this space is good. I don't think that's the case. I think that these things can be dangerous and lead us down a slippery slope unless we are introspective and thinking about, okay, if I were to see this as a long-term viable, like technological solution, not a magical black box that's going to answer my every whim if I just put enough data into it. If I needed to be able to operate this thing because my job or my life depends on it, what do I require? What do I as a human need in order to get that confidence? In my opinion, that's the way we should be th thinking about these things. And hopefully, you know, we can get more and more people in this space to be thinking in that direction. Yeah. And I mean, that makes perfect sense, right? Like if what we're doing is building decision engines to some degree, I guess you could call it uh, generation machines, just as a human would, uh, you know, we talk about it a lot is we're moving away from the world of deterministic to non-deterministic outputs. Yep. And with that comes noise. And we have to accept that any system that we build and scale is going to come with some degree of noise. And therefore we, it's open to the same exact uh, kind of thought and logic strategies that we use to get assess quality is this right is this good like where did this come from citations are just like you said one part of it but then uh looking deeper and making that same validation and building tooling that more accurately reflects kind of we how we as humans validate quality and data uh i think will be a huge step because at the end of the day it's just about making the right person who you know it's a subject matter expert on a particular uh on a particular task go yeah that's what i would expect yeah, I, I would also say just like another potential point here is that if we just continue down the road of building these like bigger and bigger models on sort of in an effort to build the one true large language yeah. model, um, the quote unquote arms race that we talked about before, where you imagine like these models would diverge, actually, I, I think they would converge because at some point you're just training on the same data, you know, right. like, like your model architecture might vary slightly, but 
generally speaking, people these days are using like transformer architectures and there are differences in the way they're put together. But for all intents and purposes, it's the same sort of like logic ultimately. Um, and when you're training on roughly the same data, like you might end up with two totally different sets of embeddings, but there probably is a way to translate one set of embeddings to another. Like, like you, you can, you can imagine that two models end up learning the same things, but in different ways because they're trained on roughly the same data. So at some point, we're just going to run out of data that's like readily available to train these things on. And there's going to be very little differentiation between them until there's a new kind of like breakthrough in model architectures. So I think today we just happen to have enough compute to like reach those limitations. And that's cool. But really, I think the innovation is a going to come from like brand new model architectures that are able to perform better on tasks or uh, combine several of the different things that we talked about earlier, along with up-leveling the human AI interfaces. Yeah. Uh, like we really do need another generation of human AI interfaces uh, to be able to do a lot of the things that we're talking about here. Yeah. It like quality such like data quality is such an interesting thing because it's from like a philosophical level, it's very easy to get so heady into it. Like what is quality? You know, how do I know this is a dog? Well, we all kind of agreed this is indeed what a dog is. Tomorrow we could all say it's a dof. I don't know. Um, but if we, I think of this book, Frindle, I read as a kid where some kid just started calling a pen a Frindle. It culminates in the book, spoiler alert, with him getting Frindle in the dictionary as a definition of a pen. Uh, I think about that book all of the time in labeling to where like up until that moment happened, Frindle was a not, was an absolutely incorrect word for pen. This idea of just, we live in this, uh, Understanding and identifying information and classifying it uh, is such a nebulous and uh, open-ended kind of problem that we're going to like the the tools that are going to actually move us forward haven't even been conceived yet. And obviously, you know, we have uh, a say in this and building these uh, interfaces, but uh, it's it's such a difficult problem in dealing with non-deterministic outputs and assessing quality that I think there's just going to have to be a fundamental shift in how we think is, I think a lot of people take data quality from like an engineering standpoint. Do these values exist in column? Are there nulls? How many duplicates? Uh, and making this kind of cognitive shift to these systems that have to interpret noise uh, just belies a whole set of problems in interpretability and explainability that uh, I don't know. I, for one, am really excited to kind of see where, where we go. Yeah. I, I think like, um, Historically, we've treated all these things as like kind of separate, like the concept of data quality is separate from like the concept of, for instance, to your point, labeling as an example, um, or the concept of like data exploration is, fundament is fundamentally separate from like, I don't know, uh, inference, like monitoring and, and, and so on in, in the ML space, like to me, these are all actually different slices of the same problem. It's as a human, I just want to make sure that the thing that's in my head is what the model is doing. And if the model is not doing what's in my head, I want to know about it. Or if there's some sort of deviation, I'd like to know about it. And I'd, I'd like to be able to articulate what that deviation is. And, and to your point about like the Frindle thing, like if the way I 
think about the world changes, then it should be fairly easy for me to communicate that to things that rely on that definition of the world, right? If tomorrow a pen is called a frindle, uh, then like I'd like my models to be aware of that. And I, I want that to be a fairly small lift. So again, I, I've said it like four times on this episode, but like I, I think like we do need to up-level our thinking in terms of how humans interact with these machines. It, it, it's, we have to move away from just talking about things as if it's like labeling or data cleaning or data quality. Like they're all part of the same problem, which is how do I teach machines how to do a thing? Right. And what are all the tools, what are all the interfaces, what are all the like primitives that I need in order to accomplish that goal? And it, it's not just going row by row through your data and like manually cleaning things. Like it, it's just not gonna work like that. It's, it's impossible to scale that. It's impossible to get real value. Like it's, it's just not tenable. You have to up-level it. You, you have to do something, but it's, you still need to have that confidence that you get when you know that like 20 humans looked at this like relatively small amount of data. You, you have some degree of confidence that chances are they did the right things. So you should be able to get the same feeling from that from all these different interfaces. Same thing on the other end. Like if I wanted to look at the output of a model, I should feel confident about that. I need to be confident about the things that go into the model, things that come out as well. And I think like the way we get that confidence is actually the same on both ends. Well, awesome. I think that's a really great place to, to bookend this year. Well, great. Uh, that'll wrap it up for today's episode of Grounded Truth. Again, I'm your host, John Singleton, co-founder and head of success at Watchful. And thank you, Cheyenne Mahanti, uh, Watchful's CEO and my co-founder. I appreciate you all for listening and looking forward to our next episode.